Mark Hamelinen has been all over the longevity space for the last 10 years now. Research associate at Sense, director of science at Synthago, founder of Last Death, and now co-founder of Longevity Biotech Fellowship, which is the number one community for longevity biotech startups in the whole world. We get into quite a bit in this episode, the new longevity retreat, longevity strategies, therapies, and his ideas on what the future could hold, building a new nonprofit, books, and more. If you like this type of content, please like and subscribe because every little bit helps. Let's stay curious to learn about Mark, the Longevity Biotech Fellowship, and this exciting space that is longevity in this episode of the Learn Lowell Show. You had your first longevity summer camp uh, this past summer. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm curious, as it's been about six months since summer, and we're looking into the winter, as the stars would say, winter is coming. Uh, what, what did you, looking back, what have you learned from it? What are you going to apply for next year? Um, I just want to kind of unpack what that like was like, since it's the first time. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, sure. Uh, it was definitely an experiment. Like my background is working directly at technology development, and so running an event. This was the first time I ever actually ran a significant event, especially a multi-day event. Um, and we got really good feedback on the participation participants. Like for the actual event itself, um, I think a lot of friendships were made. People got jobs, started collaborations. Um, I think we had uh, we had a little feedback survey afterwards, and ninety eight percent of people said it exceeded their expectations. Um, so that was really great. But um, from the beginning, I like my interest is in helping people get involved in the field of longevity and to have the biggest impact they can, um, and to bring people from other fields. And it's a pretty heavy lift to actually get up to speed on everything you need to know to make good, effective contributions. And so, like a weekend or even a four-day retreat is just the starting point. And uh, the idea was always to have some kind of ongoing program to keep people engaged and make sure that they're, you know, setting good goals, that they're holding each other accountable, that they're getting the resources and help that they need. And um, that program wasn't designed beforehand. We were, um, but Nathan Cheng, who runs the ODLB, which is another program to help people get involved in longevity. Um, he uh, actually helped me out quite a bit with uh, planning the summer camp, uh, in particular with social media stuff because I've never had never used social media before. Um, but we decided to actually team up because he has like the way ODLB works is it's this online program where you only do you know a few hours a week but over a longer period of time. And we thought like combining the retreat as like sort of the start, the induction with like a 12 week online program, just kind of reinforce and keep the momentum going. That combination I think is much more powerful than either together. And so I think I'm looking forward to uh, making that happen so that for the next retreat, people will get this uh, 12-week program immediately following it. And actually, all of the summer camp attendees are going to be invited to join for the the next 12-week online program, even though it's delayed from what would be ideal, which would be to have it start right after. That makes sense. And um, what uh, there's a, a friend of mine named Amit Khan, and his episode went up this week, actually. Uh, he does like a, an email newsletter to get people up to speed. And so you, I could see like just getting people in the funnel to come to the the, uh, the retreat, and then after the retreat having like such a dense uh, biting into things, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a like what you're saying. You're, you're taking people from zero to sixty, and that does take a lot of time. Um, mm-hmm. And 
That's that's just an, an idea thrown out there. You guys have like a little newsletter thing to get people excited leading up to stuff like that. What's the I can see the def, definite value in having a retreat because there's a lot of a buy-in. Like I think people who are going to go out into the middle of the woods and hopefully you guys aren't going to eat their livers. I mean, that's a lot of like trust there, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep hearing about conferences and stuff like that where people just make them up. So I think that the buy-in is really great. But what was the logic between having a retreat versus a conference, for instance? Why one or the other um, over the other? I mean, there already are a lot of longevity conferences. And if you want to go just sort of hear sort of the leading people give lectures mm. on what they're doing, um, those conferences exist. And plus, you can watch most of those talks online for free. So, But in my experience, uh, the highest value part of conferences is often like hanging out in the bar afterwards and like, you know, having a beer with somebody and finding out what they really think about something, you know, and then maybe ending up collaborating with somebody that you get to know while you're there. And so what I wanted to do with this is because you there's already all these free resources, if you just want to watch lectures, I wanted to focus entirely on the social part uh, because I think that's actually uh, more valuable. Uh, and so, yeah, sometimes role models are really important. Like just being able to like, you know, meet somebody and like develop a relationship with them who's like five or 10 years ahead of you and the career that you would love to have and actually like spending time with that person and getting to pick their brain getting feedback on your ideas and also talking with other people on a similar path to you. So like that um, similar path, but maybe coming from different uh, places. And so uh, I think just a lot of sort of creative thought and inspiration and making it feel possible that you could actually work on this. Uh, so I think that comes, that's like a social experience. Mm-hmm. Is there, um, were there, was there like moments in particular that stood out to you at the retreat where things were coming together? I mean, as someone's put it all together there, I can imagine there's like some stuff where like everyone's at, you know, it's actually working versus everyone just like hiding in their, in their tents or something. But was there like a moment where like things clicked and you loved it? Or like it just, it felt like it was coming together. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think, um, there was a couple really cool moments. Uh, I mean, the energy and excitement was actually pretty high for most of it. It was a really beautiful location. People, the internet sucks there and cell signal sucks there. So people weren't just on their phone. Um, they were actually talking to each other. Um, and I remember at one point we were, there was a panel discussion on um, bottlenecks progress in the industry. And uh, one of my uh, good longtime friends from like way back in like 2001, I think, um, was at the at the retreat and he got up and like a- after the panel was over, we just had people, you know, sort of making contributions, attendee contributions. And he's like, the bottleneck to progress is you. <laughs> it's, it's if if the people at this retreat aren't fully committed and dedicated and resilient and persistent in working on this problem who who else is going to do it <laughs> like um so yeah it's it's aging is just such a hard problem um and like yeah we don't want to underestimate that and we need more people a lot more people a lot more smart people working on it if we're going to expect to make significant progress within our lifetimes. That makes a lot of sense. And 
Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, the bottleneck to progress is you. <laughs> there you go. And if I, if I have time, I'll have a giant finger just like coming out of the screen uh, for everybody. <laughs> but uh, you, that was one of the things I thought was really interesting is that you're you're taking people that you're like you're open to everyone. You're not not just people with PhDs or like who are already in some type of biotechnology fields. You're open to really anyone. And so that mm-hmm. led me to this question of if if the field is wide open, are there are there key uh, is there key experiences or talent that you're looking for? and building it out they don't currently have or that you're you're hunting for right now because like um, sometimes people don't even know how applicable their experiences are they don't know how to apply their their stuff other than just like hey i have energy i want to put it over here but if there's some like specific things that people listening could like pick up on and be like hey maybe that's me yeah well for instance like if you were say you know younger and just like deciding what to study i would say um study something that is technically very difficult make yourself hard to replace make yourself not automatable for instance like sort of traditional bench type science where you're pipetting to feed your cells and that type of stuff Um, that type of approach is really slow and error prone and is not really the future of biomedical research Um, you'd be better off learning how to design program build automation, lab automation, um, computational biology, I think is really important. Um, if you are going to learn hands-on skills, make it things that are not easily automatable. Uh, like even like medical practice, like surgery, um, things like that, things that are just like very, where, where human hands and human mind are still essential. Uh, I'd focus on those types of things. Uh, there's a lot of room for innovation in like policy regulation. So if you're really into, you know, if you have a mind for legalese and that type of stuff and policy, that's definitely an area. Like if healthcare was designed in a way where the incentives were to optimize health rather than maximize the amount of money that's spent and just, so yeah, be preventative rather than reactive, it would, that would, that would create like the sort of uh, demand on the demand side of healthcare that would create like more incentive for people to invest in longevity technology actually. Um, So there's a lot of different ways. And then even just culturally, like I think we have a culture right now that is kind of negative about science. And I think that comes a lot from like the human impact on the environment that we've observed. Um, And so, but I think maybe we've overshot and become too negative about science and technology because like science and technology are a great way to solve problems and create utopian futures. Uh, it's just that I think this <laughs> science plus the bad parts of capitalism have caused some problems. Um, but yeah, let's, you don't want to throw the baby out with bathwater there. Yeah. And I think um, for the most part, people are pretty excited about science. I think people are born scientists and then K through 12 beats it out of them. Uh, taught mm-hmm. like not to question or, or whatever, which um, which is really unfortunate. Um, for for what you've learned in the conference, I mean not conference, the retreat. What what are you going to do different next year? Is there something that there's like an element that you experiment to this time that you want to expand upon? Or is there something new that you weren't able to apply in there for people who are like, hey, this kind of sounds neat. I want to learn about longevity. What what like what are some things that you're going to try out for next time? Uh, definitely, there's going to be some more 
practical exercises like hackathons where you can actually like get your hands dirty with some data. Um, I came up with the concept of less death and like, well, I didn't actually start it until like February last year. We ran the routine in July um, and there just was limited time to prepare. So a lot of it ended up being sort of discussion oriented, but with more time to prepare, we'll definitely allow people to actually do some, some more practical stuff um, so that they'll, that'll be a, I guess, uh, an additional aspect to the learning. It's more hands-on more, um, mm-hmm. how will that work with, uh, the limited, are you hoping like the Starlink, uh, sprint, I think it's sprint. Sprint like they they they're gonna have like Starlink uh, attachments so you can have like uh, internet more in more places. Yeah, are you gonna yeah, like I, uh, affect there, like there the bandwidth? There will be improved internet access. I think there's supposed to be a fiber line to the site yeah. actually potentially in place by that time. Although I still want to keep people offline if they're not actually doing one of the practical workshops because I think that was actually pretty good. Like there was like, you know, there is a Starlink there. And so like if people had like, you know, a real oh, cool. meeting or something that they just couldn't miss, like we'd, you know, hook them up with what they needed. But uh, we wanted to like not have, wanted to people not to be on their phones while they were, you know, and trying to engage with each other. Could you build like a, a, a slightly larger Faraday cage or get one of those like uh, <laughs> internet, like no, just like, just, hey guys, we... from this period of time, like everything's shut down. We have a little uh, dampener. No, we just relied on being far away and lots of trees in, in the path of those uh, microwaves. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking <laughs> that definitely helps. But for, for next year, if there's fiber optic and stuff, uh, you could like yeah. like throttle it to like keep people off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you can also, yeah, yeah, just make. It's a big, actually, The for the summer camp, it's like a pretty ex- large venue. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty easy to keep people just away from the whatever house where the internet is. Makes sense. Are there, um, for hackathons, uh, will, are there like problems in particular that you'll like suggest in advance or and people could see like what they're going to do, or is it going to be more like everyone's going to kind of like have like a whiteboard session and then break out from there? Like, how do you think that I haven't done a hackathon, but I know what they are. Mm. So I'm just curious, mm-hmm. like how would you run one from, uh, for, for this? Yeah. I mean, there's different kinds of hackathons. Like one, one, some can just be like, you just, you have a whiteboard and you like bring up like a major bottleneck in the industry mm-hmm. and then you have people kind of break up into smaller groups and just think about potential solutions to it and then come back together and like compare what was generated and like sort of yeah work off that and that can be just done in a few hours um versus if you have like you know a data set that people are going to actually try to like run some machine learning on um and we'll, we'll like you said before like we take a broad different types of people. So we'll have different types of hackathons, depending on what your sort of background skills are for the people that like, you know, are really into like machine learning or something. We'll have something that they can do that is like, but then, yeah, we'll split people up into different groups. Maybe there could be like a guerrilla marketing hackathon where you come up with ideas to, um, to get more mainstream support for longevity. Yeah. Well, I think uh, a really effective one is probably pick a fight with someone. I keep I keep seeing this. Apparently, like the most effective way to get like free press is like find your friend and say, "Hey, we're gonna fight in public." But like behind, <laughs> the, behind the scenes, <laughs> your friends, yeah. and then that yeah. way, like everyone talks about you. So you could just like yeah. uh, pick a fight with another person that you're like, "Hey, we're gonna clear with this." Then in public, yeah, you so just like always algorithm, made algorithms like conflict. Right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's just unfortunate, <laughs> but that might work. Um, 
Uh, Maybe you and I can fight. There you go. Yeah, well, uh, no one listen to this. Like, just ignore this <laughs> this part. But yeah, we could uh, hopefully not physically fight, but uh, like just just online. Um, but mm-hmm. it has been a, a couple months since the retreat. What have you seen come from it, other than just like jobs? And I think there's a merging of the two groups that you talked about um, mm-hmm. into the fellowship that now exists. But um, what has been the result of it? Have Have you seen any surprise results, like people starting companies? I don't know. What would surprise you at this point? Um surprises i mean actually a few people that went to the retreat are starting companies i don't know Mm -hmm. if they would have done it anyways but like you know now they're connected to like they can make some quicker hires because they met people so it's it's more of a amplifying and accelerating people's paths we tended to pick people that were already passionate about longevity so they were on that path but we hoped to amplify their ability to like make progress faster on personally and together. Um, I guess the feedback, like the, the amount of demand for it was very high and I've gotten ongoing, you know, lots of interest for people like when's the next one, what's coming next. So I think the demand is really high, which has been good. Mm-hmm. Um, surprises. I don't know. I'm kind of like a, one of those like level imperturbable type people. So, <laughs> that's good. I don't know. It's good to do. It's good to have. It's like a it's very stoic. You know, it's like a <laughs> just. Uh, it's not too bad away, or too man. It's like yeah. To take on a problem like longevity is like aging. It's really hard. Really complex. Mm-hmm. Like we still don't understand most of aging actually, and we're, yet we're trying to intervene in it. Uh, when I was doing my PhD, which I dropped out of, I spent two years grinding away in a lab and demonstrated that the like the work of my predecessor at that lab, like all of their results were just experimental artifacts and I was going to have to start mm-hmm. from scratch. And like, that's not unusual. Um, so you kind of have to be pretty stoic if you're going to do research in biological science, I was say. Um, and you have to be really careful about like getting overhyping, especially longevity. There's, there's like, you know, these trends that come and go telomeres i'd say reprogramming is the current fad um and i think while it makes sense that you know like aging is reset between generations there's a lot that happens in the generation of germ cells and fertilization and embryogenesis there's a lot of stuff that happens through that process that would be pretty hard to replicate in like a fully grown adult somatic person with like non-dividing tissues and things like that it's not super clear to me that it'll be the panacea that some people that i won't name make it out to be um but i do think it's like definitely part of the puzzle do you see yourself um doing the more data science side of things the machine learning then or like how do you see yourself moving forward with the field personally um yeah uh, my i mean right now i'm just I kind of am entirely focused on just getting this longevity biotech fellowship running and making that program as useful and scaling it to the largest degree that we can. Um, uh, so that's kind of my focus right now. If, uh, if I was to move on to something in the future, like say this gets up and running, we hire people, I'm able to delegate work. Um, my major passion has been uh gene therapy like i think you 
we were talking a little bit before we went, before you started recording, but uh, like if you could get a software update annually, the same way you update the software on your phone or your computer, uh, that the technology that we need in order to do that, I mean, projects in that area and that research area is where I would focus my effort if I was to go back onto a technical project. Uh, you, and that would definitely computation, computational modeling is going to have to be a part of that for sure. That makes sense. Do you see um, as a component of what you're doing can be like finding research in those different areas? Like as the, the nonprofit gets bigger, do you see a different arms? Like there's the education, there's bringing people together to have these things happen. Um, I, th I referenced uh, New Harvest before the call as well, I believe. And uh, one thing they do is like they literally like they do the train, they do the stuff. And they also like build out some of the IP and open source it for other people, which I think life, mm. life sciences, lifespan. I like, you know there's, there's another organization that does that. So I could see why maybe you just want to focus on this one area. But how do you see the nonprofit developing as you guys get yeah, bigger? Because there's such something a like, demand. Yeah. Something like the way OpenAI develops stuff and makes it available. I mean, I think that there just should be things like that in the longevity industry and biotech. Biotech tends to be a little bit more conservative and siloed than other fields. And that's actually, I would say, a problem. I, I, part of that is because it's very expensive to get some technology or therapy or something like that from like prototype to market. And so people are very, I don't know, maybe conservative and careful mm -hmm. Uh, and secretive, uh, but if there were, I mean, there's definitely like, for instance, um, a comprehensive database of everything that changes with age in the human body. Um, that would be something like I'm talking single cell multiomics from every organ tissue, um, longitudinally over life courses of people, like massive, massive data sets that like, that you could then people that were good at computational biology and other research could then use that data to like come up with ideas um, and generate models of biology. I think that would be something that would be a really good public resource that would accelerate progress across the whole field. That's the kind of thing that one might think that the government would fund, but we have, there's this thing called in the United States called the National Institute of Aging, which sounds like the kind of organization that might fund something like that, but they fortunately don't. Um, they should probably be re renamed the National Institute of Alzheimer's and we should start an actual National Institute of Aging uh, that would generate this type of data. Um, yeah, like the way NASA, you know, sends out probes and gets data on space mm -hmm. and um, for physicists to, to use in their research. Um, yeah, the National Institute of Aging should be generating huge amounts of data that can be then used by the whole academic and private community. Um, or maybe we just need to make something new. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So um, is it possible to do that, to get all that data? Cause you'd have to, I feel like that'd be quite invasive to like get like all the tissues that exist. Is it, is For a living person, some tissues you could, some tissues you wouldn't be able to. Um, I mean, some, you would, some of the data would have to be collected from uh, donation of, uh, tissue from people that had died. Um, and so that is, people do die. So that is something that's available. Um, longitudinally in a living person, there are certainly some limitations, but we, we do biopsies, you know, like some people might be down to volunteer. Um, 
your liver doesn't mind losing a few cells, they'll grow back. Yeah, I think you can lose up to a third of your liver, and then your liver's just like just grows all back, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And I think it's to the normal functionality too. It's not like even like uh, deformed or def- dysfunctional with a third missing mm-hmm. regrowth. Um, there's a quote that I could uh, keep talking about dating, uh, data, not dating, uh, that I'll, I'll read and then I think that'll go into our thought, our conversation on data. But um, aging, quite simply, is a loss of information. And that's from uh, David Sinclair from his Lifespan book. And mm-hmm. we keep talking about dating, uh, data. <laughs> and uh, uh, people are going to write in the comments to make fun of me for this. But uh, data, um, what do you think if you, I mean, so there's a lot of data there that we can grab. Is there, is there specific uh, data that you'd want to that you think we should specialize on if the idea is that aging is the loss of information or I guess you can interpret that quite quote and, and diverge us in a different direction. Yeah, I mean that's a pretty broad thing to say right yeah. like another way to look at the same thing is just like if you just look at the composition of an old person versus a young person you can just identify all the things that have changed um, information stored in like the the genome, whether it be like the actual DNA sequence or epigenetic modifications, those definitely change over time. You develop a thing called uh, it clonal, uh, you get all these different clonal populations that have different mutations. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's definitely part of it. Um, but the thing is like with AJ and I view it more as like a network of phenomena that are all affecting each other. So like we don't have a, we don't have a program that tells us to accumulate, for instance, seven keto cholesterol, which is what Oki talked about in one of your previous podcasts. Uh, that, that's not like actively programmed. It's more of uh, negligence. It's just like something that is like sort of not part of the program. It just happens by chance, by, uh, by side effect. And so there's no, like, you can't just like, you know, reset the epigenome and expect the seven keto cholesterol to just go away because we never had a program to get rid of it in the first place. So those things are accumulating and they're causing, you know, dysfunction of tissues, they're causing mobilization of the immune system, inflammation. And then like all of those things have like, then they have, you know, effects like they'll, they'll accelerate other aspects of aging, right? So like you have all these different things slowly going wrong, slowly breaking, and they're all sort of amplifying each other. And so loss of epigenetic information is one of those things, but it's not the only one. And if you fixed only it, uh, any aspect of aging, if you just fix one part of it, you probably won't get a huge gain. You have to fix multiple parts at the same time. So I think if you were to pair a sort of epigenetic reprogramming type approach that David Sinclair would act or advocate for with also like some damage repair type stuff that Aubrey de Grey has advocated for, for for decades with some replacement of tissues that seem to be head developing problems that you don't understand. And like, you just want to do the stupid thing and just replace them, which is what John Herbert would advocate for. I think it's going to be some combination of these things um, that that will actually have a significant impact on longevity. So uh, I think, if, yeah, the first question you asked me in our pre talk was that like, what what do I like about longevity? And I made this point that I think that uh, like Alzheimer's, most likely like what we'll do is that we'll just like 
rejuvenate, replace, or remove, like have that type of system set up versus like actually cure the the illness. I will just be kind of like just like every five years, like you go in, get cholesterol taken out, get all the, the stuff that we know is bad, get the things that your body doesn't make put into it. Um, that that's I think that's probably like an okay model to think about it. But how do you think it'll be? Do you think it'll be like that in terms of like illness? Like we'll just like stave them off, or do you think it's more of like um? Well, it sounds like it's more of a network effect. So I, I imagine we think similarly on this topic. Yeah. I mean, certainly you can think of like first generation, second generation, third generation longevity technologies. So like the first generation stuff is going to be some drugs like metformin and rapamycin and hopefully better than those that sort of tweak metabolism in interesting ways. Like they're, they're um, because we already, so we, within the human species, there's a lot of genetic diversity and some people get, some people have resistance to certain diseases, right? And so you can try to, sometimes you can actually replicate a beneficial genotype without actually genetically modifying somebody just with a drug. Uh, A good example of that is like uh, PCSK9 inhibitors. There's people that just have naturally super low levels of blood cholesterol, particularly the, the, the forms of lipoproteins in terms of their size and what protein species are on them. Like some people just naturally have very low levels of the, the type of bloodborne cholesterol that causes problems. And they have, they don't get as much cardiovascular disease because of that. And you can, and that is the result of a mutation where a particular genes expression level is just reduced. And you can actually create a drug that interferes with the expression of that gene and replicate that beneficial genotype. So the first generation longevity technologies are going to do that kind of stuff. You just systemic administration of the drug that like somehow tweaks metabolism in a beneficial way, often inspired by sort of natural variation that already exists in the human population. Um, then, yeah. So the damage repair type stuff, those will have to be, I mean, if you're not doing something that prevents the accumulation of new damage, then obviously it has to be periodic. Um, but the accumulation of, of aging damage is sort of by like is is slow it has to be slow right because like if it was fast it would kill us before we were old enough to reproduce so the accumulation of the types of damage uh that people talk about with age associated damage is actually pretty slow so like so infrequent uh clearing of it uh could be pretty powerful um and then if you want to look at like, you know, that could be like second generation technology. And then you might look at like third generation technology where we get so good at gene therapy and computational biology that we can actually like make design changes and be like, Oh, well, what if we just change this, these genes modify this pathway. And then all of a sudden this type of aging just doesn't occur anymore because it's, you've, you've actually modified the design. Cause I mean, if you look at the difference between me and you and a redwood tree and a whale is like the sequence of DNA bases in our genomes. Like the, the scope of what's possible to design in biology is huge. And I think it's certainly possible to design an organism that's eight rate of aging is much lower than humans like naturally uh, have. And so once we get better at design, we could actually make intelligent design modifications uh, to actually prevent some of these things from happening in the first place. Yeah, I think um, 
that's like the, the concept of the different phases. A lot of these things, it seems very, uh, like in the U.S. at least, it doesn't really seem like a lot of people are hitting on these things. They'll, they'll like, oh, if you have like, a, they'll hit like little small things, like they'll treat for things, then they'll make a treatment for the thing, the side effects of the thing that they made. They'll have like mm-hmm. one therapy, and then they, they'll cause uh, side effects, then they'll do something to fix those side effects, but then those two things will cause a new side effect, and they have to like, it's kind of like a circle. Um, mm-hmm. It's like flat circle. I don't know if anyone ever knows True Detective. I'll make reference there. But uh, so it seems like a very novel way of thinking. Maybe I'm just haven't been exposed too much into the pharma area. But um, so it, it seems like the biggest thing that longevity has to fight is just like this ignorance in terms of how to think about uh, building therapies and um, doing the research and stuff. Or how, how do you? Yeah. Well, we have like a an industry that was like very successful at you know coming up with vaccines, antibiotics, and a lot of that is like just sort of dealing with acute health problems statins maybe are like the one example or one of the examples of something that sort of breaks a bit from that mold where you're actually trying to prevent something decades before it happens but that's the exception not the rule um yeah these it's changing industries or it's changing the way an industry thinks about things is definitely a process i think the longevity industry uh nathan with his longevity list tracks sort of the market cap of different types of um, companies in in the biotech sector and longevity has been growing. I think it's grown seven X in seven years, but it's still less than 1% of the industry. And when you look at academic research, it's even smaller as a percentage of sort of biological research grants, but it's growing fast. Um, so we're in kind of an accelerating phase right now where that's the people are starting to think about like for instance moving away from just sort of like chemical drugs where you're trying to interface with biology by modifying chemistry in these like simple ways to do interfacing with biology on an information level so then that's where you would be switching to like gene therapies Um, and i think there's yeah that will be much more powerful but there's technology development to do to make that safe and effective Makes sense. Is um is there anything fundamentally standing in in your eyes? Like what what is today from having like a software patch for uh gene for genes like the like kind of your your personal uh thing that you love? What what do you think is standing in the way of of that? I mean, obviously there's a lot of R and D, but I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it is R and D. It's um, I'd say so biodistribution. Uh, in terms of like, if you want to modify, like you have, you know, trillions of cells body. And if you just inject like a lipid nanoparticle, um, most of the time the liver will absorb most of it. Like if you want to modify the liver or modify like the cells that are already circulating in your blood, those are fairly easy targets. But if you wanted to inject a gene therapy and have like one copy of the gene therapy go to every cell in your body, that's like the biodistribution problem. That's really, mm. or the delivery problem. That's actually pretty difficult. So you actually have to design your therapeutics to be sort of probably, well, there's a lot of different ways that you could solve that problem. Like um, Matt Schultz, uh, who's one of the mentors for, was one of the mentors at the Longevity Summer Camp and is going to be a mentor for the uh, Longevity Biotech Fellowship, is working on um, sort of changing the the charge, the charge in the... Um, lipid particles so that it, um, I think, uh, charged, charged particles get absorbed much more quickly and the uncharged ones can sort of diffuse around and get to more places before they're absorbed. 
Um, and they're also, I think they have less of an issue with sort of immune reactions. So toxicity, charged particles are a lot more toxic. So there's, there's tweaks you can do chemically to the, um, the gene delivery particles. You can also have therapies that actually have sort of logic encoded into them. So like say, uh, if your therapy is DNA based, um, DNA is software. And so maybe your software can tell if it's gotten into a cell that's already been modified and just do nothing in that case, right? So you don't have to worry about overloading a cell with a, one cell gets a thousand time, thousand doses and another cell gets like one. Um, you can just have logic encoded such that the, the therapy actually does nothing to a cell that's already received the therapy. Um, so, and that's, yeah, but that's, we're in the early days of being able to design and build that type of stuff. I think it, it sounds similar to a lot of the stuff we're doing with the yeast and, and whatnot, where we design them. Uh, like yeast yeah, we're pretty good at designing to, like yeah. single cell microorganisms, like editing those, but uh, still, still primitive days when it comes to modifying, you know, large animals with like complicated many tissues and trillions of cells. Yeah. And uh, I think George Church's lab just came out with, uh, they, uh, there's some new research that came out uh, where they can target like four or five things at the same time and hit all of them versus doing like mm -hmm. one at a time. It's pretty cool. Like it used to yeah, be multiplexed. like, yep. yeah, it used to be like, you know, you, you get lucky if you hit one <laughs> without mm -hmm. causing another problem. And now we're getting to, to, to those well, they levels. can do more than just a few. They can do like hundreds of thousands at once. I think they can modify, they can change the codon set of a bacteria now. Like it's pretty wild stuff. Yeah. I have a friend who's, um, uh, in a startup in this field, and he, he said that like uh, the FBI talks to him a lot because like apparently <laughs> like bioterrorism is like a concern, mm -hmm. and with with the technology getting so low, there's like some concern uh, about that type of stuff. Which is it's pretty nice that no one's thought about it too much, you know, or or like we've been like a hundred percent, you know, like we've we've it's like if our defenses are so good, like FBI or whatever is like running things that we never have mm -hmm. any like nine eleven bioterrorism type event, like then no one knows that it's a concern. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. other than theoretically. Versus like every now and again, like something pops through. Um, uh, I'd like to just assume that people are ignorant of, of this potential uh, or that the people who do know don't want to do it. Um, well, I think the people that do know don't want to do it is actually a big part of it because the type of person who, you know, goes to work in George Church's lab and does a PhD, like they're usually there because they, they're excited about like making the world a better place using this technology. They, it's a long path for somebody to like, you know, the type of person who is, I guess the mental attributes of the type of person that would want to do harm with this technology doesn't tend to overlap very much with the type of person who would have a successful career in this industry. Yeah. <laughs> so, but of course, the easier it gets to do synthetic biology, the more people will be able to do it. And yeah, so it's definitely an important uh, thing. Um, I think a lot of the more powerful technology is going to be developed in sort of automated labs where you're doing research um, not by hand, but like the, the lab itself is actually automated and you're, you're, you're just programming algorithms to search biological space for solutions to problems. And when you have that sort of software layer in between, that's actually an opportunity to encode security as well. So, and because these facilities are going to be sent uh, for the most part will be centralized and big and expensive and so like the facility can be secure and the software to to interface with it can be secure uh, so like it uh, would, yeah 
So we would like uh, hide. So like the IP to do the interfacing would be kind of like kept in house and that's secure. Or like what would stop, like if, if the technology well, existed, I mean, what stops from like first... North Korea from doing it? Could they just like copy it? Or is it like securing the DNA itself? I'm just like clarifying what you mean. Like yeah, you build like so big walls, different... but yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, there's different aspects to it. I'm not an expert in this area, so you could probably mm. get somebody on that's uh, that's more of an expert in this area. Um, like what I was talking about more was that if people are are running their experiments from their computers, like they're at Stanford, but like the okay. the actual facility is in Redwood City. Uh, like when people run genetic code, like you could have software that could look at that code and say, does this oh, code okay. pose a risk? That makes sense. Yeah. That's very straightforward then. Um, yeah, I was just no, thinking about it. No, it's not actually, it's actually a really hard problem. Well, I mean, uh, in terms of a concept, you know, like, it, yeah, it, like conceptually hard to implement. Simple, yes, yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully no one uh, picks up on that idea. So for, for, for the learning uh, and getting people up to speed, uh, how, how do you see it working out? Like, are you going to have people like self-select into like, I want to learn about the policy aspect and, 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 mm -hmm you know, have someone who mentors like a, a track in that, someone who wants to learn about, you know, Python and some machine learning, like learn about that. Like, how do you guys see that that going? So we talked about a number of different really cool areas, but as you can imagine, I love learning and I actually like, I'm gonna like write out like how I learn anything really fast. And so, uh, cause I, for some reason, like no one's taught how to learn, which is kind of sad. So I'm curious, mm -hmm. like, how are you actually gonna get, so, you know, funnel people into like where they can be most effective. So like, how do you, how do you determine where people yeah, can be so most effective? I assume there's gonna be self-determinism there, but yeah, go ahead. You know yeah. what I'm saying? You know what I'm asking? There's two aspects to this, I think. Um, so in the longevity biotech fellowship itself, we're going to have, uh, what we call mastermind groups where you'll get kind of paired up with other people that are sort of, uh, have similarities in the paths that they're on. And they might be, some of them are a little further ahead, some of them further behind, but they have similarities in their paths. And so they, they'll, sort of sync together and develop friendships together and help each other. Um, and then of course we have mentors for a lot of different topics um, and they'll have talks, questions and answers, um, office hours, that types of thing. Um, something that I'm really uh, interested in doing is setting up uh, residency programs because I think one of the best ways to learn is to just do things. And mm -hmm. so to actually like say you wanna, you're really into policy and, you know, I got my friend Dylan over at A4LI and they, they could use an intern for some projects. Like maybe we'll, we'll hook you up as a, a residency and, and then you'll get a chance to like hands-on work with some people and learn that way. Um, so you know, we got definitely things in mind for that. It's because there's so many different, like I had originally thought years ago about like, should there be a longevity boot camp, sort of analogous to software boot camps? The problem there is that like, it's easy to teach somebody like, oh, learn Python or learn whatever JavaScript, but like learn longevity. Like, what do you mean? Like, which part? <laughs> so it's like, like, we need chemists, we need mathematicians, we need um, people that are good at doing the fundraising. We need like, there's just so many different roles to play that there's not like one boot camp. So yeah, that's why we kind of have this model of the fellowship, which has like ongoing education, um, mentorship, chances to like, you know, befriend your peers and work together on on learning. And then residencies is another thing that uh, we'll be exploring. I love the idea of residency and getting hands on. I think uh, I think most people, if they can get to that level, are going to really enjoy it just in general. 
um, versus like maybe uh, a theory is like kind of fun sometimes, but sometimes it's not. Um, I think like seeing how things apply is like probably more exciting for most people. Um, I definitely, I definitely learn by just doing things. And some yeah. people are good at lear- learning by reading. I learn by doing. Yeah. I, um, like one thing that I do, I call it, well, the surgeons do this. I, I didn't, I didn't make this myself, but it's called like uh, watch one, do one, teach one. And so mm-hmm. like you, you, you watch the surgery, you do the surgery and then you teach other people. And so I think mm-hmm. that is a pretty effective method. Um, I don't know how I could see some ways you could incorporate into your, um, teaching methodology for what you're building. Um, and then you can have like other people like teaching other people and then it kind of like starts exploding like uh, like adding ye- uh, sugar to like a little petri dish, like the population going up because everyone's like multiplying the knowledge and, and exactly. expanding. Yeah, yeah. And we actually already have, for instance, people um, like we, uh, the people that were like um, attendees at the summer camp are now counselors at the next event like that. So you kind of like just keep on paying it forward Sweet. and expanding exponential and, and- growth. Yes. Um, and is there like a wild card feature where you could do like a, like two weeks or whatever, like a project in all the different areas and then you could like specialize from there? I mean, that would be more logistically complicated to set up. I, I think that's the kind of thing that we could strive towards in the future. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's definitely, there's logistics and resources required for that. And that would be maybe partnering with like Stanford or some like existing institution to like try to put that kind of stuff together. I'm not, yeah, that's an interesting idea. Uh, don't think about that. Is um, is there in terms of scalability? At a certain point, the area itself, unless it becomes like a burning, <laughs> burning man or something, uh, which I've seen pictures of, like it's like a giant city or something in the desert. Do you see like chapters coming up? Like you guys are the main one, and then maybe like have an authorized chapter of the like a, someone who's the who attended the first year is helping out the second year, maybe the mm-hmm. third year. Um, they're like have their own little chapter in like maybe like Miami or something. Yeah, definitely. So local chapters is the part of the plan. Um, as we as we get bigger, I don't. Um, I think one of the great things about the summer camp was that you could actually talk to and to some degree get to know most of the people that came. It was a little bit too big for that, and we actually thought mm-hmm. maybe it was a little bit too big. Um, and so we don't want to make the retreats larger. The retreats will always yeah. be small and just more of them uh, we might even have like um multiple parallel at the same time so there could be like you know a uk a germany a california and a florida one that happen all the retreat happens at the same time but then they're all part of the same cohort for the online portion so that's the sort of direction that we plan to go with that that makes sense and uh there's tons of experimentation you can do to like optimize um because mm-hmm. i was thinking uh, you could you could um you can like specialize for like their their where they want to focus like the policy or whatever but like to that level of specialization it's, it stops being as much fun if you're just talking to like other policy people like like 90 percent of the fun is like talking to other people you don't even know yeah. what that conversation yeah come and from. that's a lot of the retreat was like that just you just like you just sit down for breakfast lunch or dinner like with different people at the table and you just so what do you do and like those conversations are super important do you see any um potential or any uh brainstorming around like putting like focused stress on people like i think one of the big things that uh in terms of like building bonds is like you do like you could sit down and have dinner at like a normal restaurant versus like going for a hike you're probably going to know the person better if you go like go for a hike and do something strenuous like mm-hmm. that's like a, a perfect thing um also you know i don't know but like so eating dinner out in the middle of nowhere like that's like still more strenuous do you guys i think camping because we uh, summer camp was actually camping and i think that was actually stressful for some people <laughs> um we um 
and we did actually we went on a group hike we also yeah. had yoga classes in the mornings like it was oh, definitely was yeah there was stuff happening so there was it was more than just yeah talking over dinner and workshops like we had people moving around and doing things and it was part of like the i um i mean those things are healthy too so it's like we're you know, if you're uh an advocate for longevity you should also sort of live we don't highlight or talk about the sort of lifestyle type diet type stuff as part of our programming there's enough you know resources out there for that if that's what you're interested in we're really focused on the the actual content is all in science and technology development and and other forms of like sort of ways to accelerate progress um but at the same time it's like we served healthy food and we had you know, exercise and like it was, it was the experience of being there was like a healthy experience. And that was, so that seemed appropriate. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And um, there's like, there's so much, it's new. So there's so many different ways you can go on it and experiment and try new things. So we could have like, mm-hmm. um, there's like a Friday the 13th game where there's like one guy with like a machete and he hunts everyone else. We could have like a football page and he, like other people want to play. It could be like little bacteria being reprogrammed or something. Um, I yeah, think that's a little silly, but like silliness is fun. Biology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything to get people. Summer camp, uh, actual summer camp when I was a kid playing this like carnivore, omnivore, herbivore game where you're like running around in the forest and like some people are carnivores and people are herbivores. And I don't remember exactly what the rules are, but <laughs> you made me think of that. It was pretty fun. I've never heard of this before. Is it like rock, paper, scissors? I mean, I guess it's been too long. I've never been to a summer camp. I, I, no, I mean, you're actually running around. It was more like a game of tag, but where there was three different types of players instead of just two. And there was more than one sort of it person. Mm. I'm, I'm always surprised by how quickly adults become kids. If you give them like a flashlight and tell them to go fly, play flashlight tag or something, <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> it's really nice. And then I think people see each other more. Um, so I'm glad the, the event went well. And uh, I'm excited for the next one. Uh, I don't know if I'll go because I don't travel all that much. I'm kind of a, a introvert. But uh, I will try to get out. And um, for people, is there like, uh, for the for the next one, what will be the capacity? And how quickly will they get to learn about it? Like- uh, so it's actually been announced already. If you go to longbiofellowship.org, mm-hmm. um, you can you can apply right now. The next, the next retreat is actually called Longevity Winter Camp. It's this uh, January uh, in Marin, uh, just an hour north of San Francisco. And this one's actually going to be a little bit smaller um, than the summer camp. So I think there's going to be only like 45 people, including the counselors. Um, and so, yeah, that'll like our, the retreats will tend to be between 40 to 70 ish total people, including counselors. And so, yeah, the next one is in January. So you can apply now. Sweet. Um, and, um... and then there'll be longevity summer camp is going to happen again. And we have other locations that were in the early stages of planning for. So I don't want to announce them yet, but there will be announcements. Makes sense. And then um, I know there's like the TV show called Survivor where like they used to like go all over the place, but then they just settle on Fiji because they get tax benefits for it. <laughs> um, as you guys are exploring different areas, I imagine like eventually there'll be a consolidation and then you have all the chapters and stuff that are, are growing. So for the organization itself, um, are there people that you need or you're looking for to partner either like, uh, you know, businesses to partner with, partner with or uh, people with specific talent uh, experiences that you guys need to bring on board to execute the next year very strongly? Uh, yeah. So we, uh, we do take sponsors and I think the, the, the sponsors that we sort of are going after are people who are employers in the industry. So for example, like, you know, retro is uh, sponsoring us. They're one of the, 
big, exciting new companies, but there's a, you can see on our website, some of the other ones. And, uh, we, we only just started asking for those pretty recently, um, venture capital because they, you know, getting access to our, the longevity bio fellowship, it's going to be uh, probably quite a few people involved in this. And so there'll be opportunities, definitely like investment opportunities will come out of it. And so I think investors probably should be interested in, in sponsoring or getting involved in some way or another. Um, and then in terms of the people, I mean, the main thing is uh, I want people to apply like if, if you're interested in running a local chapter or something like that, I think the best way to start is actually go through the program and then, and then join the community and then just, you know, talk to us, hang out with us and be like, Hey, I want to start, I want to, we should do a retreat in Australia. And I'll be like, Oh yeah, who else? Well, we need, we need at least a, such and such, we need a venue, we need this. And like, you know, it'll just start to come together. So join, if you want to get involved, uh, join the fellowship. That makes sense. And, um, is there, if there is, I, I didn't, I didn't see it. Maybe I'm just blind, but, uh, do you have like every X, like, like, uh, like for every like hundred thousand, like X happens or like for the million dollar goal of raising uh funds, like you're going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Like, have you, is that available somewhere? Or like, can you just like walk us through, like, how does like, so if someone gave you like a million dollars, like what, what, where does that go essentially? And then like, how do people see where it goes? And then. How can people yeah, track so the we are yeah. we are a nonprofit. Um, we have put together some sort of um, budgets at different scales for like what we would do, um, depending on how much we had. I think um, if we wanted to expand faster and have more retreats in parallel, we would need to hire some more staff, basically. So right now it's just me and Nathan full time, and we would probably need some more people full time in order to you know just handle all of the logistics and work involved in making those things happen. Um, we also could do some cool software stuff and do fancier practical exercises and workshops. Um, so that would require, you know, getting some expert help to design some of that kind of stuff. Um, I don't yet have like, uh, just sort of like at these different tiers, this is what we would do sort of like, uh, I guess, what is that? Like the crowdsource type fund level things. Uh, we should probably put that, that together. I've just been really focused on just the sort of creating this new merged organization with Nathan and then getting the, uh, the first retreat going, we decided to focus on, cause we, we do charge for the retreat and we don't, we charge as little as we can. Um, but we want to try to cover our costs to a significant degree, just through sponsorships and event tickets, um, rather than being reliant on, donors but if we could get donors uh we could definitely accelerate certain things especially um so another aspect of local chapters is i think every major university and biotech hub should have like a meetup group that meets like once a month to talk about longevity um saying like effective altruists have done this pretty well like most universities have an effective altruist club um there should be the same thing for longevity at every every university um, and so we definitely have ideas for how we could sort of make that happen. Um, so we have friends with like, uh, I have friends at this organization called Nucleate that's done this very effectively for sort of entrepreneurship in uh, universities. And so sort of replicating what they did for, but for longevity, partnering with them and other organizations in the longevity space to sort of set up these local chapters. 
I think it makes sense. And you and there's like there's tons of places like iGem, for instance, that would just fit. Like if there was like a partnership or something where you guys could like work together and like have like a longevity themed uh, mm-hmm. iGem competition. Yeah, I really like to sort of jointly throw in events and that type of thing to get the cross pollination from different communities. Like even you were mentioning like the sort of cell based meat type people earlier. Uh, a lot of technology development that's happening to try to lower the cost of cell-based meat could actually end up having applications in, you know, growing cells for therapeutic purposes. Because right now, one of the obstacles to regenerative medicine is it's really expensive. And so if we can figure out ways to lower the cost of production uh, of uh, cells and organs, um, people from that industry might actually learn things or just develop the right mindset that they can apply to try to turn these to scale and make these processes more efficient and cost-effective. That makes sense. And uh, I, I wanted to ask you, now that we're talking about food real quick, um, what do you think the future of food is? Like, if you were to just imagine, like, you know, you're, I think you said you're like mid-30s, so we're, you're like a little bit older than me, but we're in the same age bracket. So what do you think mm-hmm. the future of food's going to look like? Food? Uh, honestly, not, I don't think about it too much. Um, I don't, I don't super over optimize in that area. I mean, I don't eat junk. I don't eat things with added sugar. Uh, the future of food versus what people should eat aren't necessarily the same thing. <laughs> um, I mean, trying to still exist. I mean, I, if I wasn't working on longevity or if I thought it was a solved problem, I think, you know, energy and climate and conservation are other things that I'm passionate about. And so I would love to see us minimize the amount of animals in agriculture. If we could, you know, get that protein uh, from plant-based sources or animal cell culture, I think that would be, uh, that would be huge because of just like the amount of the surface of the earth that is committed Mm -hmm. to animal agriculture right now is kind of absurd. And it would be, it would be awesome to just let that go back to nature instead. Um, so I, that's something that I would, uh, yeah. So figuring out lower impact ways to get the protein that we need. Um, and I don't think that sort of like, you know, the impossible burger and beyond burger are, they're pretty cool, but they're not like a perfect substitute. Um, like the amino acid profile is not optimal for absorption by humans. Um, there's definitely a room for improvement there. Um, I, have dabbled in being a vegan and vegetarian, but largely because I don't like the way animals are treated. You know, I founded an organization called Less Death, and animals are do a lot of the dying in our world right now. So it'd be nice to, have, but uh, it'd be nice to see less suffering, both by humans and animals. Yeah, I think um, I think I hope that's the way it goes. I, I think that a lot of food. It'll be like with horses and cars, like horses won't entirely go away, but mm-hmm. they'll be treated much better, which is better. like, I mean, that's a huge victory. Yeah. The horses now are probably pretty well treated compared to horses when they were just like, yeah, being used as cars. Yeah. There's like um, wagyu beef and stuff. So even if they, yeah, like, they they'll be really, really special. They the streets for... anymore. <laughs> yes. I think there was like a study that said that by 1903, the poop in the streets was going to be so much that like New York city wouldn't be able to function. They didn't like, yeah. they couldn't foresee cars existing, which I thought oh, that's a really funny thing. I, I think the problem, like I, that was actually, I wonder if that like really accelerated the transition to cars 
in a way that is not analogous to the meat industry because like the the, the sort of suffering and environmental impact of the meat industry is kind of abstracted away and people don't actually see it firsthand. I mean, yeah. go to go to like a factory pig farm and look at the waste that's being produced and the suffering there. Uh, like people yeah. don't actually see it. Whereas like it's, if you're walking down the street and having to avoid stepping in poop, that's like more in your face. That makes sense. The, I grew up on a farm, so I'm used to, any animal that I came in contact with was touched, was treated very fairly, like, and, and yeah. very good and had happy lives. But um, I think, yeah, the big... I, I, I think that's great. Like, so if, if if that's all that we had, and you know, it was much smaller scale, that I think that would, I think most people would think that that's a better system. Yeah, I think uh, like that type of technology has a lot of potential for relieving like disaster areas, like uh, you know, like the crabs going extinct. You know, like they they the the their fishing keeps going down and down to what they can do now at zero. So they could just complement that. I think that's like a lot, like um, they're not seeing it, but they're seeing like the economic impact of it. So I think that's how they get more excited for it. Or if a country has like a experienced famine any, any time in the last like generation or two, like America, it's been a very long time since America experienced a famine. So for the most part, like people don't, don't even think about food too much. Um, so for, you seem like a person who reads uh, at least a little bit. I'm curious, like, how do you go about, uh, are there, do you have certain watering holes on the internet for learning? Are there, are there books that you're reading right now? Like drop anything you recommend, I'm going to read. And I will tell you <laughs> that I like it. Um, so not. I'm a, actually, I've almost finished writing a blog post that will go up on the Longevity Biotech Fellowship website. That's going to have a bunch of recommendations. Oh, sweet. Um, and we're, we're talking with a couple other longevity organizations right now, about jointly developing a sort of a syllabus that we mm -hmm. would just keep updated and make these, if you want to get it, involved like these are all the things that one might want to read broken down by sort of like like sort of introductory versus deeper so it's like maybe you need an introduction to computational biology but you're not actually a software person so you just need to understand enough that you can talk to the software people or maybe you actually want to become a computational biologist and then we give you a list of like these are the textbooks and this is the software stack that you should install on your computer and start playing with um, that makes sense well, so, well, well i could yeah putting a syllabus together is that's that's a work in progress um uh what's his name martin borsch jensen had a tweet recently that i could uh link you to where he listed a bunch of really good resources um that's like a good starting point yeah what would be a just a couple of teachers for people listening in that might be in a car and can't google things uh, well, a simple book to look up. If if you're looking for an introduction that's like fairly scientifically, like uh, uh, it's not like pitching like a particular person's theory, but it's like a good overview of the longevity industry, Ageless by Andrew Steele, which came out in December 2020. It was uh, quite, I think, well done in that regard. It gives you a good overview of the different, all the of aging biology and all the different strategies people are using uh, in terms of trying to develop interventions. Okay. I'll, I'll that's actually on my list of, to check out as well. So that, that makes it easy on my part. Um, yeah, the audible so, book is well done. So awesome. And then, um, is there, so when you're, you, you've transitioned to many different careers over the last like 10 years, like you started at like one and you've, I don't know, like to me, like they have a theme of course, right? Like he didn't go from like doctor to like, uh, I don't know, bare knuckle and boxer or something <laughs> there you go. Like, you know, i can see doctor and bridge engineer like somehow like you know the structure of the human body the structure of bridges or something like that but uh, as as you like move from one place to the next how do you like what is your process for gaining that knowledge and learning new things I, we talked about practical uh 
practice doing something practical so my i could guess at what it is but i'm curious like what would like how do you like go about finding practical things to test and learn knowledge um i guess i make friends that are good at the things that i want to be good at and so mm-hmm. then i can like pick their brains and learn from them um uh, i definitely do read a lot actually i said i'm not a i learn by doing but i also i i'm a pretty voracious reader reading allows you to sort of sample what's possible and then like you then you have to actually try to put it into practice um i don't know i've kind of just jumped in the deep end frequently like dropped out of a phd and joined a startup pitched investors hired people i I had never done any of those things before just just jumped in the deep end and uh, ask for advice like you know talk to people be ask for advice be I think a really important thing is to not be emotionally attached to the way you do something or to any particular ideas, um, to be very, very willing to, uh, drop your, your approaches and your ideas when you come across something better. Um, people, I think that's, that's something that is not taught. We're taught in school that you have to be, you have to have the right answer. And if you have the wrong answer, you're bad. (laughs) Right. But like, everybody like all of our answers are usually not wrong per se but not the best answer and you can usually find a better answer and like so being really sort of curious and like being excited when you come across a better way of doing something rather than being like oh all this i put all this effort into this other way of doing things and now and it's always wasted like no just be excited that you found a better way to do something yeah and I, I mean, I, I know people who, even if you suggest they could do something better, they're like, well, I'm not perfect. Like, no, <laughs> of course you're not perfect. You're going to grow. Yeah. It's well, there's like, yeah, there's like a sort of an emotional attachment to ways of doing things or a defensiveness because, uh, but yeah, just sort of having a mindset of like curiosity and excitement around new things. Is there uh outside longevity? Cause I think you'd beat me in terms of uh, resources there. Is there something that you're curious about? Maybe we can, I can recommend some books for you. Uh, oh man. I spend so much time on longevity. I actually started, I just downloaded Duolingo and I'm starting to learn Spanish right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know anything about language acquisition, any tips on language acquisition? Immersion. There's a Immersion? guy. Yeah. Basically go to where there's Spanish speakers and only speak Spanish there. Mm. Mm. Like go, like have an entire day where you only speak Spanish and navigate. Like mm. you'll start yeah, like cave Manny. Yeah. You'll start a cave Manny, like water mine want. Yeah. You know, well, I, I, I have a bunch of friends that are Spanish as their first language. And so I was like, Oh, I should feel like it would be cool to be able to converse with them in their, in their first language. And so that's why I started picking it up, but I could just tell them like, Hey, when we're hanging out, like just talk Spanish to me. I'm, I'm going to struggle, but just, <laughs> it'll be fun. Yeah. And you could even uh, add like a distance. I, I think it's called disincentive where it's like for every English word you have to use to add, like ask for a clarification. It's like a, like 10, like a buck or whatever, like just enough where it's like annoying, but not too much where you go bankrupt or whatever. So um, you just like, you, you can ask for help, but then like keeps galvanizing you. Cause you can ask like, what is the word for, you know, mm-hmm. chocolate. And then it's only like $1 for saying chocolate. Mm-hmm. KSL, whatever. Mm-hmm. What is the word? KS. Uh, don't do this to me. I don't. I don't know Spanish either. Um, <laughs> so that's exciting. Yeah, I think Duolingo is probably the best bet you, you got there. There's some. There's some people who are literally their entire lives is learning new languages, and they're 
um, I'll, I'll have to do a search and see if I can find you. Uh, so there's some like TED talks on how to do it better. But I think the big mm-hmm. thing is just like immersion. Like if you just mm-hmm. are around it a lot, like if you give yourself like a month where you're only surrounded by people like that, uh, speaking that language, like you'll, you'll probably be fluent pretty quick. Um, yeah, do especially for Spanish. Yeah. Spanish is an interesting language, especially for, so is it just for the, the front element or does the culture, the, the thing why I realized when I was like starting to learn other languages is the culture is so much a part of the language. Mm, definitely. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I like to travel a lot and um, Spain, like I think if you're going to expand the the portion of the earth that you can travel in and like, you know, communicate effectively with people, it feels like Spanish is probably the second, the, the best second language. I'm not really sure. I guess it depends where you want to travel to, but yeah, well, I'm hoping there's going to be like a babble fish one day. You just like pop it in your ear and it translates for you. I don't know if you're a fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> or Matrix style where you actually download information and like it gets incorporated into your neuro- neural networks and you can actually uh, make just like have a skill. I wonder what that will be like, like a phantom memory, like one of those like uh, implanted memories. I wonder like, I wonder about that type of technology, but we won't go off on that track. <laughs> um, so last couple of questions. Um, what does happiness mean to you? I've been, I've been asking more like personal questions because I, you know, I don't know. Like, I always feel like, Probably should do this, but it's been actually really fun to ask people the, uh, these type of questions, and the uh, sure. uh, listeners have been enjoying it as well. So, what does happiness mean to you? Um, happiness. Um, I think I'm usually happy. Now, what does it mean? I mean, obviously, it just means like you feel good. You feel tends to be associated with like sort of feeling hopeful about the future, satisfied with where you are, um, probably in the moment and like really, truly like, like there's a lot of things to be happy about, but it's easy to ignore them or get like accustomed to them and like stop paying attention to them. So like the ability to actually pay attention, I think is really important to like what is like good in your life. Um, Yeah, it's one of those things like you, it's like asking what is beauty, you kind of know it when you see it, but like, yeah. could you like write a specification for it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you, um, do you optimize for happiness in terms of like how you make decisions? Um, I optimize for some amount of happiness, like, you don't want to be miserable. You need, you need, yeah, you need enough that you feel like, you know, it's, worth the effort to keep going mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're working on things that are really hard um you have to have that balance there so i spent a fair amount of time in the wilderness uh exercising uh rock climbing skiing doing things like that that like you know make me i guess they make me happy definitely and so and then you can kind of and having you know friendships and things like that and then that gives you the energy to you know invest in things that are difficult Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Is um, so you read a lot. Is there a universe that you would live in if you could? Uh, I like uh, Ian Banks' culture novels. It, if that's mm-hmm. like definitely one of the best sort of utopian. It's like if AGI goes well, it's like the, it's like the positive AGI outcome, <laughs> benevolent mm-hmm. AGI. Um, that definitely feels like a world where people have like a pretty maximized ability to self-actualize in whatever they way they want. 
I, I, I'm a little skeptical of like the, how he portrays, how people take advantage of that. I don't, I think that, but you know, it's like, you have to take some liberty and like, you don't want to write a story that's like too weird or dissimilar from like the way humans are now, because it'll be hard to relate. So I think it's a, a little bit unrealistic in how the humans behave in that universe. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy was actually the uh, science fiction series that got me interested in longevity. Um, I read the first so, one. The I Red it. Mars. I highly, yeah. I hi- highly recommend the full thing. The arc is pretty impressive. Um, yeah, that uh, that one I go back to a lot. Actually, I've read that one six times. Okay, then I'll definitely have to get a get back to it and read the second one, which is like green. Right, they're all like mm-hmm. different colors of Mars as it becomes like a uh, colonizer, or whatever. So mm-hmm. it goes like red. Brown. What other colors are red and yeah. green in that context? They, There's three of them. They actually, like, longevity treatments were developed as a side effect of them trying to make people more resistant to the radiation that mm. one deals with on the surface of Mars. And I think that was actually kind of a good story aspect because, uh, like, that, I think that is true. Like, for instance, the side effect of the side effect of, um, Um, like people developing fake meat stuff and then becoming and then like finding applications in like regenerative medicine. Like, I think we'll actually, or even like going to Mars and surviving on Mars is going to require us to be able to produce healthy protein where we can't do low cost animal agriculture. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, a lot of the times that like there's a lot of overlap uh, that can happen in terms of technology development. That makes sense. Um, and then, so we got into a, a variety of topics today. Is there anything we missed that you think, given the context of what we're talking about, we should talk about real quick? Um, well, I have a question for you. Sure, hit me. Um, so assuming you could have, you know, really good health indefinitely, how long would you want to live? As long as my wife does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like N minus one to your wife's age. Yes. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, I think there's a lot of cool things in the world. Probably as long as she wants to be alive, I'll probably stay alive or else I would get pretty bored without her. Mm. What about you? Okay. Well, assuming she would also not die if she didn't need to. Yes. Well, I, I, who knows? I could be like the like a like a genie benevolently gives me longevity, but not her. And mm-hmm. it's like okay, then sixty more years, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's not really the thing. Is like if we if we develop these technologies, they'll be for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, unless we choose to have like an economic system that you know concentrates wealth into the hands of a very small number of people, you know, that would be a dumb thing to do. Humans wouldn't that's, do that, would they? No, we wouldn't. Have you seen the movie Elysium? <laughs> it's kind of a, a little preview there. Um, yeah. Actually, for some I mean, books, I think... Like, for instance, like the COVID vaccines are are kind of primitive gene therapies, actually. And they cost 20 bucks a pop, right? Like, gene therapy, in principle, should be very, very cheap. If it's expensive, it's not because of, like, the nature of it on a technical level. It's because of our so- social economic system. And that's something that can be changed. Um, so I think that'll be actually like longevity might be a, like if we do develop therapies for longevity, that could actually be a driver for change that is overdue for many reasons, not just longevity. Yeah. 
And I think uh, even if it was like a bunch of like business billionaires getting the benefit, they're going to guinea pig on the rest of us, which means that it has to work for the rest of us first. Because like if you're a billionaire, there's like a longevity therapy. Are you going to take the experimental thing or are you going to watch it be implemented on other people and then let it be implemented on yourself once yeah. you know it's safe? And of course, so if, you you have something that, if you have longevity therapies that work, you're going to, I mean, capitalism has its pros and cons, but like it wants to make money. And if you, you make more money by having a billion customers than you do by having 10 customers. So people are going to want to figure out how to make it as widespread as possible because bigger market is better. Yeah. Um, but yeah. There's actually, uh, as my last question, um, so one of the things that people always worry about, I don't know, like the conspiracy theories is like they figured out cancer, they figured out, you know, but like no, they don't want to share with people, uh, which is not true. If they found cancer, they would look like they would be like singing that, uh, especially yeah. the scientists, like they couldn't, they couldn't keep that bottled up. Is there a conspiracy theory that you like? It doesn't have to be true, but you just like enjoy it. The, the like the veracity of it i think like flat earth people are just like they put a smile on my face whenever i hear about them and i'm sorry if you are one but it makes me smile that anyone believes in it it's just like this is like the most funny uh conspiracy theory i've ever heard yeah i don't know i guess i don't think about it too much i don't know if i have a favorite one like the one that comes up for me often is that um people i think there's a pretty strong aversion culturally to genetic modification but yeah. i think that mostly comes not from people understanding or being bothered by genetic modification from a technical perspective specifically it's more that their only like exposure to the concept is reading about like the latest shitty thing monsanto did right and so it's like i think a lot of the negativity around um, genetic modification comes from actually there it, it's it's a misdirection of of people's like sort of anger at like some at, like the bad business practices of a particular company rather than the technology itself and what it could do to benefit them thank you for joining us today with the learn with lol show check us out learnwithlol.com anywhere podcasts can be found subscribe tell me what you thought of this episode Check us out on YouTube in particular. It's a new thing I'm doing. Uh, Timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming. And I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about. And you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.